If you would, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. The very beginning. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. I love the way that the Bible starts. I love the, uh, the creation account there in Genesis chapter 1. And, and uh, then what you can read further in Genesis 2 when you get to Adam and Eve. I think there is a tremendous amount of depth and beauty in these passages. Uh, they are passages that I think can be uh, enlightening to us. They can remind us of our purpose. They can remind us of who God is. They can show us how he is separate and distinct from anything else we might uh, think of or dream up or any of the ancient gods who were worshipped in uh, Canaan or Egypt or, uh, or you can look at you know, Greek and Roman mythology and you can see how God is unlike anything else that there ever has been. I think that there is a tremendous amount of uh, theology and depth in these passages and, uh, and because of that I think it's just a wonderful introduction to the Bible, a wonderful introduction to the way that we think about God and our place in his world. I do think uh, sometimes there are passages that over time we begin to ask questions about, and then those questions that we have come up with become kind of our main uh, uh, driving force as we study through a passage. And sometimes what can happen is you end up missing the point of the passage because of the questions that you've started asking about it. Uh, so like a quick example is I, I've heard many classes on John chapter 2 where Jesus turns water into wine that are about... Uh, what was that wine? Was it alcoholic wine? Was it grape juice? How much alcohol? And like, whether are we allowed to drink? And, and all of those things. And I get why you ask those questions. I get why those questions come up over time because it becomes relevant to some sort of topic. But if you focus on that, then you actually miss the point of John 2 because that's not the point of Jesus turning water into wine to have that conversation. I think the same thing is true if we read Genesis and all we walk away talking about is uh, the theory of evolution or how old the earth is or some of those questions. I get how those questions have developed over time. But I'll also say, I don't think that's the point of Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. I think those are questions that can actually, if we focus too much on them, we can miss some of what's happening in Genesis 1 and 2. And so what I want to do is I want to try to just briefly look through Genesis 1 and 2, and I want to ask some different types of questions. And I want to see, as we read these passages, what is it that God is doing as he creates this world? What does he think about the world that he created? How is he separate and apart and distinct from the world? And why does that matter? And what is our role within it? Uh, and so as we do that, uh, there are a couple of things that, that I think we need to, to notice. One of them is uh, as we read this passage, we are almost immediately going to have different mental images in our brains than the people who first read these passages. Uh, if you look at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. If you look at uh, chapter 2 in verse 1, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. Okay, so in those are bookend verses. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, thus he finished the heavens and the earth and all their hosts. So what Genesis 1 is giving you is the story of how God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, and so Genesis 1-1 is kind of the, the book end that begins it, and Genesis 2-1 is the book end uh, that tells you how the, it was completed. And then you have that final seventh Sabbath day. But notice chapter 2 and verse 1 also says, the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. 
So this is going to tell you how God made the heavens and the earth and how he filled the heavens and the earth with all the stuff that's in there. Um, and so those are what the first six days of creation are going to be about. Um, when you hear the word heavens and earth, and when I hear the word heavens and earth, I'll tell you, if you're anything like me, the first thing I think of is the earth, like the planet, the earth, the, the blue ball that's floating in the sky. And I, I, whenever I picture earth, I picture it as though I were looking at it from a satellite that's 10,000 miles away, looking at this, this round ball. That's what I think of. But those words, heavens and earth, if you were, even just a couple hundred years ago, uh, that's probably not the mental image that you would get. As a matter of fact, the word heavens, we have all kinds of theology associated with it, like that's where God dwells, and we kind of think of heaven in different ways, but really a very basic meaning of that word right there would be the word sky. He made the sky. He made the stuff that's up there. And the word earth, we have a planet that's called earth, but the people originally reading this probably aren't thinking so much of a planet called earth, they're more thinking of the earth, the ground, the stuff that they're walking on, the stuff that's under their feet, the land. So here's one difference that we have from the original audience. We think about it from a satellite 10,000 miles away looking at what the earth looks like. They are probably thinking, oh, he made the stuff up there and the stuff down here. In the beginning, God made the sky and he made what I'm walking on. This is the story of how God did that and how he filled that with stuff. Uh, and so this is going to be a story about God making the heavens, the sky, and the earth. And what's also interesting about this is as we'll read it, we'll notice there are some things that perhaps are a little different than, than uh, we sometimes uh, think about them. So you get to verse 2, and he describes the earth. All right? This is the earth seemingly before God made something and called it earth. That's going to sound weird, but you'll see hopefully what I'm getting at as we go through. Because verse 2 says, And the earth, or the land, it was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. All right, so that is before day one where God says, let there be light. This is a description of what the earth was. And it's a really weird description. It's, it's formless and void, or it's, it's waste and wild, some translations say. It's, a, it's an interesting Hebrew phrase. It's not used very often. It rhymes, and it's just kind of a way of saying it was a, it was a wild, uncanny place. Uh, there wasn't much structure to it. In fact, all you had was darkness, and you had waters. Notice that's kind of interesting, that there are waters already there. And then, so there's no day where it's like, on day five, God made the waters. You, you don't see that, that happen. The waters are there before he even says, let there be light. And then you get to, to uh, verse three, and it says, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. So God looked at the darkness and the waters, and he said, we need to turn the lights on. And so he turned the lights on. But we're also not told what this light is, is even coming from, what the source of this light is. So it's kind of an ambiguous phrase about the lights coming on, but God likes the light. In verse 4, God saw that the light was good. And then God separates light and darkness. That's an interesting idea. How do you separate light and darkness? Uh, well, the way we find out God does it isn't by, like, moving the light here and the darkness here. God seems to do it by time. There are going to be some times that it's light and some times that it is dark. And so he's going to call those different time periods something as you continue to read. Verse 4 says he separated the light from the darkness and the light he called day and the darkness he called night. 
and there was evening and there was morning one day. So sometimes there's going to be light, and we'll call that day. And sometimes there's going to be darkness, and we'll call that dark. There are a couple of things just in this first day that we've noticed and that are going to be kind of a pattern throughout the rest of, of these days. One of them is that God will say something. God said, let there be light. God said, uh, you know, let, let there be uh, lights in the heavens. God said, like, God will, will begin by saying something. Uh, you can see, uh, like, verse 6, then God said, verse 9, then God said, verse 14, then God said. Each day starts with that phrase. Then you'll see that God will often, not every day, but often he'll separate something. He'll separate light from darkness. He'll separate the waters from below from the waters above. He'll separate the waters into one place so that dry land can appear. God will separate. We'll also see that God will call something a certain name. What does he call the day or the light? He calls it day. That's interesting because if you were to ask me what I call light, I might call it something else. You know, I might say it's uh, photons or something. I don't even know the science behind light. But, but you know, it's like I would, I would have a different uh, description than, than day. Light and day aren't exactly the same thing. You know, it is light during day. But, and then darkness he calls night. Um, so God is more describing the purpose of light and the purpose of darkness. It's to separate times, to give you day and night. And so he's, he's using this and he's describing why things are, but he called them a certain name. We'll also see that God will then look at what he's done and God saw, and then it'll say that it was good. So God is speaking, God is seeing, God is separating. God is the subject of like every verb here in this whole first chapter. It's all about what God said, what God made, what God saw, what God separated, what God called. And then you have that final phrase, evening and morning, and then a day count. Day one, day two, day three. So this is the story of God making the heavens and the earth. The first thing he does, if he's going to work, he has to turn the lights on. So he turns the lights on. And now he can see this formless, void, water-filled earth. And he's going to do something on day two now. Now he's going to make the heavens. Remember, it's the story of him making the heavens and the earth. What day does he make the heavens and the earth on? Interestingly, he makes the heavens on day two and the earth on day three. Uh, we, we tend to think of it as, you know, I think sometimes I've heard it like, God made the heavens and the earth in chapter one and verse one, and then he did all this stuff. But if you read through it, the whole thing is the story about how he made the heavens and the earth. When did he make the heavens? Well, if you look at day two, it starts in verse six. He says, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. That's a weird description. Uh, we don't even know exactly what the word expanse means. In fact, it's translated a lot of different ways. Some translations say space. Some translations say firmament, uh, which has the idea of something firm, like a dome. There's different translations that take different cracks at it. Um, but basically what this is seems to be if there's waters up there and there's waters down here, it's what's ever in the middle. And we're going to find out what God calls that. Um, he's going to, in verse 7, say God made the expanse and he separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. So in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. When did he make heavens? Well, he makes this expanse, whatever that is, but he calls that expanse heaven. So that's him making the heavens. So that's day two. God makes the heavens. And he looks at it, and uh, verse 8, and God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning, a second day. Okay, so guess what he's going to make on day three? Well, if you remember going all the way back to verse 2, before he even says, let there be light, there's this water there. 
Now, the day two, he takes the water and he moves it from here to up here. Day three, he's going to take the water. He's going to move it over so that whatever's under the water will appear. And guess what's under the water? Land. So you get to the next day. It's in verse 9. Then God said, let the waters that are below the sky or below the, the expanse or below the heavens, let them be gathered into one place so that dry land will appear. And it was so. And guess what God calls the dry land? God called the dry land earth. So day three is when he makes the earth. Uh, or, or at least what he makes what he calls earth. And so he moves the water horizontally, he moves the water vertically, and that's how he makes heavens, that's how he makes earth, and that's the story of God making the heavens and the earth. But then he does something really fascinating to the earth. He makes it productive. The earth isn't idle and void. It's not just lifeless rocks and dirt. It actually is able to produce stuff. The earth becomes useful. In fact, he says in uh, verse 11, Then God said, so there's two different times on day three where it says, then God said. So like God makes a couple of things on day three. The, the earth by moving the waters, but then he says, let the earth sprout vegetation. So this earth, is, this land is going to be able to produce stuff. Vegetation, plants yielding seeds and fruit trees uh, on the earth or on the land, bearing fruit of all kind with seeds in them. And the earth, verse 12, brought forth vegetation. And so it ends up growing and, and like you can have trees and plants and food. All right, and then verse 13 ends, and there was evening and there was morning, a third day. All right, so those first three days are where you get the creation of the heavens and the earth. But then if you remember, chapter 2 and verse 1 says, and all their hosts, the next three days are where you're going to get their hosts. You're going to get what fills these heavens and the earth. So the first thing he makes is light in the sky. Guess what he makes on day four? Well, we say sun, moon, and stars, because that's what we, we think of these as. And they are the sun, moon, and stars. But it actually doesn't use the word sun or moon on day four. It uses great light and lesser light. Uh, so there's a great light during the daytime and a lesser light at nighttime. So this is going to connect it back to day one. God says, Make, let there be light. Now he's going to come up with the hosts that order that light. Uh, so like chapter uh, 1 and verse 14, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens. Remember when he made the expanse in the heavens? That was day two. Uh, but now he's going to put lights up there. Remember when he made light? That was day one. So now he's just kind of restructuring and ordering all this stuff. And why does he put a greater light to govern the day and a lesser light to govern the night? Again, this deals with time. He says he does this so that they would be for signs and seasons and for days and for years, and let them be lights uh, in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. So he made the heavens and the earth. Now he wants that to be able to order time on the heavens and the earth and to shine light down on the heavens and on the earth. And so that's what he does on day four. Notice that these heavenly bodies that are described, the, the greater light and the lesser light, they actually have a job. They are governors. They are to govern or to rule or to, to order time. Uh, God doesn't just create them for no purpose or function. He gives a function to them that they are supposed to have a job in his creation, which is to shine light down upon the earth and the, and the waters, um, but also to give time and seasons and all that stuff. Um, then you get to the next day in verse 20. It says, then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures 
and let the birds fly above the land or above the earth in the expanse of the heavens or the sky. And so you remember day two is where he took the waters below and he moved them up above. And so now there's waters down there, there's waters down there, and there's space in the middle that he calls the heavens. Well, now he's going to fill that up there and that down there. He puts fish in the water down below and birds in, that, in the heavens, which are above. So day th- four is about ordering the light of day one. Day five is about filling the waters in the heavens of day two. And day six is where he's going to put animals on the land, which he made in day three. And so all the days, they, they connect. He makes the heavens and the earth, and then he fills them with their hosts. It's a beautiful structure to it. And you see him do this. Uh, verse 24 is where God says, let the earth bring forth living creatures. So now the earth is going to bring forth animals, these living creatures. And uh, after their kind and cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after its kind, and God made the beasts of the earth. And then look at uh, the end of verse 25. And God saw that it was good. If you've paid attention to the other days of creation, at this point right here in day six, you should be expecting a sentence. God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, a sixth day. But you don't get that. This whole first chapter is highly structured, highly stylized, highly poetic. You have this order of each day. You have like these reoccurring phrases each day. But that structure in that order breaks down right here in day six. And something else is about to happen. Instead of him saying, and there was evening and there was morning day six, God begins to have a conversation. And God says, we need something else. I've made the heavens and the earth. I've made the lights. I've ordered the lights. I've filled the heavens and the earth with all of the animals. I've made it productive with fruit and and with trees and vegetation and all of that. Now what am I going to do with it? Well, I want to put something down there in my own image that will order the heavens and the earth, that will rule it well, that will rule the animals, that will take care of what I have just made. And so that's when you get to the famous verse in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens or the sky uh, and over the cattle that's on the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. And God made man, or mankind, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So when God says there in verse 27 that he's going to make man, that that word does not mean male. That word is like, it's a general word for mankind. Uh, And what he's saying is, I'm going to make mankind, both male and female, in my image. Male and female, he made mankind. And then after he does this, verse 28, God blessed them. And God, which, is, which is really cool. Like, he doesn't do that through, with each day. This is new stuff that's being added. He blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then behold, God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed. So remember day three, where God makes the earth productive? He says, I'm giving that to you. You are going to be able to use this creation for your benefit, but you're also supposed to benefit this creation by ruling it, by, by expanding it, by subduing it. Notice a couple of those words there in verse 28. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You know, when we think of the next chapter, when we get the story of 
Adam and Eve and the Garden of Eden and, and all of that, you might get the impression that their job is to just stay there in, in Eden. In fact, Adam is given the job of uh, protecting Eden and for taking care of Eden. That's why he's there to cultivate Eden and all that. But if you compare that to Genesis 1, they're not supposed to just stay in Eden their whole lives. They're supposed to multiply and expand and fill the whole earth. And then there's that phrase, and subdue it. It appears that not all of the earth was quite like Eden. There were still parts of the earth that should be subdued, that should be made productive, that should be able to produce plants and goodness and where things should be able to live. And so what he's doing is he's giving mankind not only this, this favored place in his creation, but also a purpose within that creation, to join with him in that creation, to partner with him in subduing the rest of the earth. God could have subdued the rest of the earth himself to bring peace to the rest of the earth, but instead he creates man in his image and says, I want you to rule this. God could have ruled it himself, right? But he wants us to rule it. In fact, that's what he says. When you think of the idea of ruling something, that's who rules, you know? Kings rule. People who are in charge of a kingdom, they rule that kingdom. And how are they supposed to do that? Well, if you read the rest of the Bible, you'll see the way God talks about the way kings rule. They're not supposed to, like, destroy everyone in their uh, kingdom so that they could get more and more and more for themselves. They're not supposed to, to mistreat or take the, the wealth of the people underneath them or steal the wives of the people underneath them. That's what David does, remember, with, like, Bathsheba. He stops ruling well at that moment. God wants us to rule all the stuff that he made, but he wants us to rule it well, like him. And he describes that whole ruling like him as being in his image. We're supposed to look like God as we rule. We're supposed to look like God as we join with him in partner, as partners and subduing and filling and multiplying his creation. And so that's Genesis 1, and there's so much more that you can go into. There's so many more questions you could ask. That's a brief thumbnail sketch of some of what's happening in Genesis 1. And you see some of those ideas carry over into Genesis 2 when God uh, does make Eden, and he says, says you know, there's, there's nothing that can grow because there's no man to cultivate the ground. So God makes a garden, and he puts a man in it to cultivate the ground. Like, man is supposed to work. It's supposed to, to fulfill this purpose. But there are a couple of things kind of looking through this that I think are particularly beneficial for us. Um, as we ask ourselves, why does this matter? And why did I, I just spend you know, this time going through Genesis 1? Uh, I think there are some things that actually matter for the way we view the world, the way we view ourselves, for the way we view God, and for the way we view our purpose. Remember, our theme for the year is the idea that we are sent. Um, I think Adam and Eve were sent to this earth for a purpose. Uh, I think we are on this earth for a purpose. And I think Genesis 1 gives us a pretty good idea of, of what that can be. Uh, point number one I would make, though, is uh, Genesis 1 shows us that we serve truly a remarkable and amazing God unlike anything else that there is in the whole wide world. You know, Israel has their creation account. They have their story of, of how the heavens and the earth got made, but they're not the only ancient culture to have a story like that. We have Babylonian creation myths. We have Egyptian creation myths. We have other Mesopotamian creation myths. We have uh, these stories of Canaanite creation myths. And, and as you read through these, one of the things that's really fascinating is you will see a lot of connections between the way those stories are told in the passages that I just read to you in Genesis 1. 
But perhaps more interesting than the similarities in the way that they're told are the dramatic differences that emerge. For example, if you were to count the gods in those others, uh, you'll get a different number than the gods that you count here. Uh, there is only one God who is the creator of all that there is. In fact, as you look at this God, you'll notice some things about them. In those other cultures, some of the things that God makes in Genesis 1 are gods that are worshipped, like the sun and the moon and the stars. Those are things that, uh, that were worshipped as gods in other cultures and in Egypt and different places. But within the creation account in the Bible, God is not creating those as equals or they are not gods along with him. They are things that were made by him. They are things that obey him as he creates them and gives them order and functions. Uh, and so when you read Genesis 1, you don't come away thinking, hey, we should make golden animals and worship them like a golden calf. Or we should worship the sun, moon, and stars. No, it's fine to appreciate all of what God made. In fact, I think we absolutely should appreciate all of what God made. But the purpose of that is to reflect worship and praise back to God rather than the things that he made. Uh, God made mountains. I love mountains. I'm very happy to live closer to mountains. Uh, there aren't mountains in Louisiana. <laughs> there's, there's, there's like, it's the flattest place you'll ever see. Uh, I like being near mountains. But that's not so that I could worship and praise mountains. That's so that I could appreciate the God even more who made mountains or the sea or the sky. And like as our scientific knowledge advances and we begin to fully grasp the heavens are far grander than we ever thought possible. There's more stars and more planets and more beauty than we ever thought possible. That should remind us of the power and the glory of the one who created it all. Who spoke it into existence? These are reminders of God's greatness because he's the one who's ultimately behind these things. So I think we should appreciate what God has made. As a matter of fact, you know what? After everything God made, even before he made us, he said that it was good. Day one, God says, that's good. You know what that means? That means, like, who's it good to? It's not saying it's good to me. I wasn't here yet. It's not good. It's good to God. God likes the things that he made. God likes the earth that he made. God likes the planets and the stars. He likes the animals. Like God created the stuff and he likes them and he thinks that they're good. And so then when we were made to care for those things, we're taking care of something that's special and valuable to God, which kind of brings me to point number two. When God made us, he made us uh, as people who should enjoy creation. We should be able to see and, and, and appreciate the beauty of it. In fact, there's this interesting phrase in uh, Genesis chapter 2 when it's describing uh, the trees that God makes in verse 9. It says, Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. Uh, notice those two descriptions. Good for food, that's an obvious, you know, that's a function. We eat it, it's good for us. We need to eat stuff that comes from trees sometimes. Uh, but notice he also says, pleasing to the eye. Trees are beautiful. <laughs> and God is an amazing artist who makes beauty. Uh, but as God does that, we're supposed to turn the beauty that we see into worship and praise of him. Um, and he, caused, he created us to enjoy the things that he made, but also to turn that creation, or turn that, that worship into him. Rather than worshiping the sun and the moon and the stars, uh, we are created for a purpose. In fact, that purpose is to partner with God. When you look at the things that God does in Genesis 1, he creates he calls things by name, and then when he creates man, he wants us to rule that stuff, 
to continue to create, to subdue the rest of the world, to grow and to plant and to care for things. But then also you can see that, you know, after each day, God calls it something. What does he have Adam do with the animals? Adam is the one who then calls the names of the animals. Like God is inviting us to join with him in this initiative for creation. We know how the story goes from this uh, point forward. We know that man was not created for no purpose. We were created in a place that God really liked, that was good, to care for what God made. And we also know that as you continue to read the story of Genesis and the rest of the Bible, sin enters into the picture and it begins to destroy some of what God made. And other people become destroyed in the process. They destroy themselves. They destroy God's good creation. Not too long, there's a flood that actually takes the whole earth back to that Genesis 1-2 state where it's just all darkness and water. It's like he, he goes back there and then starts over again with Noah. And Noah becomes just like Adam. He ends up sinning again, finds himself naked and ashamed again. Uh, Noah ends up bringing the same problems that Adam brought into the world. And you see that those things multiply with Babel. And, and then God chooses Abraham to try to redeem things back. And, and all of God's creation gets off kilter and out of sorts because of sin. And I would say just like Adam and Eve were given a purpose, we have a purpose and a mission as well. And it goes back to the very same one that they were given. We are supposed to rule this creation well. And part of that is fixing some of those problems that have emerged over time. We are to redeem the creation back to the one who made it, but also redeem the people who are part of God's creation back to the one who made it. Jesus died, and it's not to completely forget about the initiative of Genesis 1, but the initiative seems to have grown because now the ones who were in God's image seem to be imaging anything and everything else but God in the way that they live. And Jesus came as the perfect image of God to show us both what God is like as a man, but also what every man was created to be. Jesus shows us how to live as people God created in the world that God created. But we have a purpose. We have a mission. We should care for his creation. I think, I, you know, I know things get politicized sometimes. It's so like environmentalist stuff. I don't, I don't pay enough attention to politics to know how that became partisan, so I'm not getting into that, but I will say it's a good biblical idea to care for the environment and the world that you live in. That's, that's not a right-wing or left-wing thing. That's just right there in the Bible. We should care about the world that God made, and that matters a lot. And we should also care about the people in God's world, and we should also care about the animals in God's world, and we should care about God's purposes for his world, and we have a purpose that is directly tied to that. And so as we draw this lesson to a close, Remember, God is amazing and there's no one else like him. Remember that God's creation is good and you were called to be a part of it. And uh, you're allowed to enjoy it, but to turn that enjoyment into worship and praise of God. And finally, you have a purpose within it to redeem it to redeem the people in it, to bring salvation back to God's world and to the people who are a part of it, who are called to live in God's image. You have a purpose of imaging God in the world around us. So let's take that purpose very, very seriously. If there's anyone here who wants to uh, become a Christian, that's a great way to start. Uh, if there's anyone here who wants to name Jesus as Lord of your life and live for him from this day forward, we pray that you let that be known. We could baptize you this morning into Christ. We could study with you if you need that. Uh, but we pray that you would let it be known, that you would come and sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.